Well, today uh, we have witnessed the laying on of hands, which is the setting apart and the ordaining of men to a particular office. I mean, you may not have felt it, but, but something just happened. There was a real change. Uh, men have been vested with an office, and that office comes with certain authority and certain responsibilities. And because of that, it's a, it's a joyful day. Uh, it really is, uh, and in some sense, somber, but uh, that kind of solemn joy that the book of Hebrews often talks about. And yet we live in a time when our confidence in institutional authority as a nation is at an all-time low, and that includes confidence in religious authority. I mean, in fact, trust in the church was nearly identical to people's confidence in public schools and labor unions the last time that poll research took the numbers. I mean, we only beat banks by 4%, which is not great. We did fare much better than Congress, though, if that gives you any, any hope. Now, some of the lost trust, of course, in institutions is justified. I mean, the church has been far from living up to her calling in many different areas, and yet the general trend nationally is to distrust all institutions and all authority, which makes things like today interesting, because like it or not, these cultural shifts end up affecting us subtly and sometimes even unknowingly. Well, we're called on days like today to examine ourselves in light of God's Word, in order that we might together fare well in a culture that far too often thrives on things like fear and distrust. And so let us look at God's Word this morning concerning the office uh, of elder, and may it be for us something that helps us live together well, but more than anything, to follow the Lord well. First thing I want to see is the calling of God's leaders, the calling of God's leaders. You'll notice in Hebrews chapter 13, we're introduced to a category of people in the church that the Hebrews at least designate as their leaders, a word that speaks to those who are placed in some sense, at the head of something. But you'll notice that leadership is immediately defined by the author. It's circumscribed by two particular modes. He says, this is how these leaders have shown themselves in your midst. And you'll see these two things. They spoke the Word of God to you, and they set an example for you. Those really are their two modes of leadership. And so notice this first one, the Word of God. Christ, as you all know, is the ultimate king of the church and the sole head of the church. There is no other. This is without question. Notice what verse 20 says in our chapter, the Lord Jesus, who is the great shepherd of the sheep. So this king, Jesus, is the great great shepherd over the whole flock, from the least to the greatest. But that shepherd left us with his will that's expressed to us in the Bible. He didn't leave us without a word. He spoke to us, and we need not wonder, if you will, what he wants or desires for his kingdom. He told us those things. He wrote them down. You actually hold them in your hand. You've heard them read to you this morning. I mean, this book that we read from every week is the constituting document of the church. It's what teaches us what our king from heaven would have us to do. And it immediately teaches us two things that we confess. This immediately teaches us two things that we confess as Presbyterians, that Jesus is the alone head of the church 
And therefore, because of that, it teaches us the second thing, that all rule in the church is limited by and held in check by whatever the great king says. A rule in the church merely means that one is repeating what Jesus the leader has already taught us. What he says is limited to, for us, what is found in the Bible. And so the only authority that exists in the church are those who take that Bible and repeat it to you. Um, Many of you have multiple children. We were blessed to have uh, an eldest daughter first, um, one that was responsible, and then three sons, which I won't speak of in any way, shape, or form. Uh, which meant that as soon as uh, she uh, hit bat mitzvah age, we took her down to uh, a CPR training center, got her uh, certified in CPR and emergency uh, techniques, and then we started having date nights again. And it was a wonderful, wonderful time in our life. Um, but I do remember, you know, those days when we'd leave her in charge of three little brothers, there was a very distinct reality that was communicated when we were leaving, which was, if you don't listen to your big sister, you're not listening to me. And, and that there will be consequences, that it's not just uh, a problem with her, it's my authority that will be uh, under attack. You know, her authority was merely an extension of my own. Uh, but what if, while we were away, you know, big sister began to shape policy. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, things that had never been true in the home before, she's just, you know, writing new laws as she goes. You know, all of a sudden, bedtime has been moved from nine o'clock to five o'clock because she wants to have, you know, all the TV to herself. Or, you know, she's starting to say that things we said were off limits are now completely okay. Uh, there would be a problem with that sort of leadership because her authority only extends as far as it uh, as far as it uh, agrees with the authority that I left her with, the things that I spoke ahead of time. But within the confines of the already set rules in the household, she does have the authority to make game time decisions, right? Left to her own wisdom. So if she wants them to eat at six o'clock and watch a movie at eight, well, that's fine because it's, with, it's within the parameters of what's already true in our household. And she's not writing things that undermine our rules. She's not uh, disobeying me by, by doing so. Well, this is very similar to the authority given to elders. They are to repeat God's word to say what God has already said. To not, they, don't, they don't have the right to, you know, uh, create new laws that God hasn't written. And they're also given the authority to apply wisdom as needed to particular situations. And if the word is Christ's word, when that word is spoken, it is him speaking. If the word is Christ's word, when that word is spoken, it is him that is speaking, and especially when it is spoken by those that God has commissioned to speak it. It comes with special authority. But notice the authority is invested in Christ and Christ's own authority. Notice what the author of Hebrews teaches us in the chapter before, see that you do not refuse him, Jesus, who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. So the author of Hebrews speaks to the congregation and he goes, 
We have someone who has spoken to us from heaven, and if you don't listen to him, you'll be in danger like our forefathers were in danger. Don't refuse the Christ who is speaking. But what is interesting, of course, is that the members of this church likely had never heard Christ speak physically on earth. They didn't receive the message from Jesus firsthand. We actually learn that from the text. They received the message of Jesus from leaders of the church who had received that message from the apostles before them, which is why he says in chapter two, therefore we must give more earnest heed to the things that we have heard lest we drift away. And he goes on, they were first spoken to us by the Lord and were confirmed, they were first spoken by the Lord and confirmed to us by the ones who heard him. So notice, he's saying, don't refuse him who's speaking from heaven. But they didn't get the message directly from heaven. They got the message from someone who had heard an apostle and brought that message to them. But to refuse that message was the same as refusing Jesus' own speech to them as if he spoke to them from heaven himself. So leaders lead, you'll notice, in the church, or elders lead by confirming or pro proclaiming the words of the great shepherd. And that is primarily where the authority of elders resides. Not in titles, not in force, but in repeating the words of Jesus and directing people toward those words. As one has said formally, an elder without a Bible is an elder with no authority at all. And so the leaders of the church first lead with the word of God, but notice second by example, as you see in verse seven, notice imitate their faith which is interesting the way it's phrased. Notice he doesn't say first and foremost, imitate them, but imitate their faith with the outcome that their faith produced in view. And so they have the same object of faith, which is Jesus, which is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Keep looking at Jesus. Don't turn away from your hopes on him. And he says, your leaders have this one thing in common. They kept their faith on that object, Christ himself. And notice the outcome, even through persecutions and some of them even unto death, never turned aside from their faith. Mimic that, follow that, imitate them in that. I think one of the most profound things and maybe disturbing in the Bible is that God only calls fellow sheep to be shepherds on earth. And therefore, those who lead in Christ's church will always first be those who knew that they were also needy. You don't get leaders in the church based on people who always had it all together, because if they did, they would have never had a need for Jesus. You get leaders in the church who are first and foremost those who know that they have a need for a Savior that's outside of themselves. You see, before these men become helpful, they first must cry out for help from the great shepherd. In fact, it's their rescue by that great shepherd, their own personal rescue that fuels their service and their ministry. I mean, we see this very early on uh, in the apostolic witness, right? Jesus makes plain that he is the great shepherd. And he tells his own apostles, you just wait and see. When they strike the shepherd, all my sheep are going to flee. And sure enough, it happens, and especially we see that preeminent example of Peter, the most famous of these scattered sheep, who denies 
his Lord three times. But when Christ is restoring him there in John chapter 20, we hear him as that restoration is taking place, continually saying to Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Once you have been restored, once you have finally seen that my mercy is for you, here's what I want you to do as a formerly straying sheep. Go to other sheep and tend them and feed them and care for them. And you see this so obviously in Peter's ministry. He uses this illustration and analogy constantly when he's speaking of his own work in the church. In Acts chapter 20, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In his epistle, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And what we get in this, if you will, preeminent apostle's calling is that before he was called, he was just a sheep too, and he wasn't the most faithful one. He was one that was wounded and battered and at times almost faithless, but he had a great shepherd who prayed for him that his faith would not fail. And he restored him. And he says, now that you're restored, strengthen your brethren. And so as he goes forward as an apostle, what fuels his service is that he knows that he has been well cared for by the shepherd. And he desires to give that same care in the same manner that the shepherd gave it to him to the flock that is under his care. Because of the mercy received, the elder is to have the same compassion and care and desire for the flock that Christ has given to him. You see, God only uses sinners in his service. And sometimes they were formerly egregious ones. And Christ is okay with that. The question is, are we? Is that something that we can handle? I mean, what is it you're looking for in an elder? Uh, we are looking for a good example, but primarily a good example of how to be faithfully saved by the shepherd. What does it look like for Christ to rescue a wandering sheep? An example who's compassionate because he has a well-rounded knowledge of himself and his own weaknesses and his own needs, as well as a knowledge of Christ and his saving power and his willingness to seek and to save and to care for the lost. I mean, Christ's whole disposition towards people is that he was compassionate toward them because they were scattered and they looked haggard because they were sheep without a shepherd. We look for an example of one who has a life that is being bound together by that shepherd towards wholeness. Yeah, we, we definitely aren't looking for leaders who are, are worse now than when they started. That's not, uh, that's not a good trajectory. But we also aren't looking for leaders who have already received the full outcome of their faith, perfection, which isn't going to happen until glory. But we are looking for those who Christ has begun to make whole and who are completely dependent on him 
still in that waiting process for that outcome. God has placed in the church actual leaders, real authorities. But notice the means of their leading and the means of their authority is twofold. His word, which is the only thing that grants them authority, and their example that grants them the desire for you to lead over them, or grants you to the desire for them to lead over you. And that example that they have is based on them needing rescue. The next thing we want to see is their duty. Notice what you see in verse 17, they're to keep watch. It's a word that really reflects on the need in the congregation for protection and for management. Their goal, the big goal, at least in the book of Hebrews, is to keep you from drift, to keep you on the way. And that's why the author of Hebrews would say, it is really foolish for you to make that job hard on them. They're trying to keep you from falling off of the way. And, you know, for some, they make that really difficult. And he says, that's, that's, that's not of any advantage to you. They're trying to keep you from not going uh, in this way of shipwreck. And you, for whatever reason, you know, keep poking them in the eye when they come near. And notice they've got two things, the two dangers, according to this text anyway, uh, that they're protecting the congregation from internal dangers, our own temptations, the hardness of heart that would lead to unbelief, and external dangers, false teachings that would lead us astray from the gospel of grace. And so there they are watching over souls for this author is the same as tending the flock. And the whole goal of watching over them is that they would keep on enduring, keep on believing the gospel. And you'll note, this isn't a call to micromanage your life. Um, and I know these elders, no one wants to do that. They have their own lives to micromanage. You know, no one wants to become your second mom. That's not the goal of elders. Uh, and most of you don't want that either, though some people really do. They want an answer to everything, and that is not the role of the elder. But they are called to keep you setting your eyes on Jesus in the midst of the difficulties of this life. In whatever form those difficulties will come in your own sin and struggle, external hardships, temptations, etc. And in this keeping watch, you'll notice in verse 17, they have an accountability structure. They will give an account for your souls before God. I mean, like a government official that has those he reports to, or a father in the family, or one who has to submit books for an audit, the, book, the buck does not stop with the elder they will have to give an answer to Christ. It's his world. It's his church. You are his sheep. And therefore, their care for you ultimately makes them answerable to him. The only appropriate motive for service in this area is to honor the king by being concerned about the well-being and benefit of the souls under their care based on the grace that's been given to them. You know, I think a lot of times, and it surely has happened uh, in the history of the church, people look at the office of elder, and I think they look at it with a jaundiced eye, like people are, are seeking power in it. And it's not that that hasn't happened. It surely has. Uh, but if you see most of what the elders are involved in, it's not all that glamorous, and there's not much power to be gained. 
It really comes down to hopefully dealing with people's lives and helping them keep trusting in Jesus to the end. And their motive for that is they want to honor Christ and they want to see you do well in that regard. And so if that's their duty and calling, what is the calling of God's people? You'll notice he tells us a few things here in this text as well. The first calling, it says, follow them. Verse 7, remember, consider, imitate. Notice all of those words pointed toward these leaders from the congregation. The question is, you know, do I get hope as I consider what following Christ has meant to and done for these men? Do I get hope from that? You know, it's not always because your elders are healthy and wealthy and all is going well for them because that's often not the case. Often you will see in the midst of the lives of elders, tribulation and hardship, sometimes things that break their heart. And yet what we hope to see from them is they don't grow embittered, they don't fold, they don't give up on their faith. They keep trusting in the merciful Savior that has bought them with His own blood. They clung to the gospel of grace in the midst of trial, which is our calling throughout the entirety of this age, which Calvin says is oftentimes no more than a constant death, is that we look beyond the struggles of this life and hold on to Christ. And that is the example we're hoping to see from our elders that will give us hope in the midst of our own struggles and trials. But it's more than that. You'll notice we're called to obey and submit to them. And those words already, you know, get certain people uh, already, you know, fired up and they're on guard. They're hard words. And many of us have been put off by them for various reasons. But that first word, at least that's used in this text, obedience, has within it the idea of obeying through persuasion or convincing. Meaning that the elder's authority and obedience to him is not just mere blind authority. It's not some sort of blind obedience, do whatever we say and do it now. You know, the kind of authority that sometimes as a dad I, I try to pull, uh, which is not a good way to lead either. Uh, this is persuasion through the Word of God. The text assumes this in verses 7 to 9. They teach the Word of God. They live lives in accordance with it. And therefore, let those things be persuasive to you as they advise you from that Word. Obey them. And notice, submit to them. It really deals more with an attitude that leads to this action of obedience. An attitude that really is bent toward trust. You know, through persuasive speech and a life that's been an example, be ready to trust your elders and yield to them. This means that your inclination as a member should be to trust your leadership, not to immediately recoil against them. Uh, not many of you here, I must say, but some do think it's their spiritual gift to be perpetually in doubt uh, or to be bent on, you know, being resistant. That somehow is their spiritual calling in the world. You know, distrust of authority, some will say, is our first civic duty or, you know, question authority. Jesus did. You hear this stuff all the time. You even see uh, in Christian circles the idea of don't be a sheep, which I find fascinating. Uh, not only does God call us sheep, but you'll notice he then gives us human authorities in every sphere of life that we're called to be in submission to. There's no sphere of life that God doesn't say, there's a man somewhere, a human being that you're going to have to submit to. 
It's part of how he has decided to govern this world, whether civilly or in the church or familially, there's always people and those people will always be broken and they will always have some sort of uh, flaws that we could easily focus in on and make us resistant. And if we're prone to resist, according to the Bible, because God has set it up this way, it's sinful. He desires for us to submit. But notice, submit, especially in this realm, the realm of elders and leadership, we submit as far as the Word of God says to submit. Our authority as elders and ministers, according to even our own uh, documents, is what, what we call ministerial and declarative. It's not magisterial and it's not legislative. Like the example I used earlier, my, my daughter is allowed to repeat whatever rules I have in the home. And if they're disobeyed, then they're disobeying me and not my daughter. But if she starts legislating, she starts making up rules, that's something entirely different. And if you have, you know, elders that are telling you, well, we've decided, you know, this is God's new plan for your life. Uh, there are times to be resistant but insofar as they're repeating to you the word of God, our calling as members of the church is to obey their authority. Elders are to be servants of the king, not kings themselves. They're to repeat what he says, not create new laws. But in the ordering of the church, there will be house rules, things that just have to be decided, you know. Uh, and we are called not to be a pain on these issues nor a behind-the-scenes, you know, complainer trying to help through the, the back doors. The Bible doesn't give overly regulated lists of how-tos on certain things in the church. It gives clear doctrinal teaching in the Bible, which is rigid and unmoving, and the church should be held accountable by, for those things. The elders themselves should be held accountable to what the Word of God says, and we as members of the church should be held accountable. But then the Bible also gives books of wisdom, that show us that many scenarios in life require wisdom that is uh, not easily discerned. It depends on the situation and the times and what is happening. It's not nearly as rigid as certain things that are very obvious. And so here's what God gives. He gives His Word, He gives wisdom, and then He gives elders. And He trusts in that plurality of elders we should be apt to follow them in the things that are secondary or wisdom issues and not explicitly stated in Scripture. So if we say, hey, we're going to meet at 10 a.m. and you really like 9 a.m. because, you know, your, your children nap at 1030, uh, it's one of those things that you might just have to submit. Now, mind you, you can always bring uh, a concern. That's fine. Uh, but once something's decided and that's the way it's going, to be resistant, according to Scripture, is not only unhealthy, it's unbiblical. You know, we, for instance, in our liturgy, pray the Lord's Prayer weekly. And maybe you think, uh, well, I don't like that. I don't like that we repeat the prayer. Well, you know, the elders decided it. It's in the liturgy. Join in with what's happening. This is not the time, you know, uh, to, to, to put your flag in the ground and be disobedient. But the beauty of Presbyterianism, and you don't hear that phrase put together too often, is that thankfully it does have safeties built into it that make this sort of submission, at least should be, so much easier. Notice, you choose who will lead you. These men that were ordained this morning 
were chosen first by a selection from some people in the church that said, we think they'd be good elders. And then they came before the elders. And we said, yeah, it's possible. These guys could be good elders. And then they went through training and we saw who they were. And we said, yeah, we, we not only think that they're you know, morally qualified, but they're also theologically qualified. And then they were brought before you again to elect uh, and they were voted on uh, nearly unanimously. There's, you know, if you voted against them, 90 some odd percent of all of your friends voted for them. I will just say that. Uh, and so you had a vote to confirm the men who will hold office in the church. And that wasn't just based on your desires, but they also had to meet standards set forth in the Word of God. You'll also notice there's always the plurality of elders. There's never just one. It's never just one guy's good idea that gets to run roughshod over everyone else's. And that is in an effort to prevent tyranny. You know, we believe as a reformed church in total depravity. One of the things that shows that we believe in total depravity is we have a plurality of elders. Even elders are sinful. Uh, even, you know, the best of men can go astray. So what helps with that? Other men to hold them accountable, that they're not left to their own desires. And this is glorious if you've ever come from a background that's been o overrun by, you know, someone with a Napoleon complex. And depending on what your church background is, I know my own, one of the things that pushed me toward Presbyterianism was kind of the Moses model of leadership where one guy's desires uh, ultimately ran the whole church regardless of what anyone else said. I remember one of the first times I went to a Presbyterian elders meeting, uh, the minister who was there was formerly from the denomination I was formerly from. And I said how great it was, you know, uh, to have plurality of elders. And he said, well, just so you know, I still always want my way. And he said, and that's why I need these men to stand in my way if I'm wrong. He said, he said it's not that I've become a better person because I changed the nomination. I still think I'm right. But there's a safety in other people saying, well, we know you think you're right, but we think you're wrong on this one and being okay with it. Beyond that, there are, more, there are ways in our church to remove a man from office. If someone is failing morally and spiritually, then there are steps that can be taken. But since there are steps that can be taken, if you feel so strongly about an issue, they need to be taken before you go. Uh, these sorts of steps need to be taken up before you go around making your case in the court of public opinion. Oftentimes, campaigns are done so passively through gossip that a man's whole reputation could be ruined and he's never even heard the accusation himself until it's already taken as truth everywhere else. That is wicked. I mean, how do you know if you're gossiping? If the person you're telling has absolutely no authority to do anything about the problem you're reporting to. If they can't change anything, you're just getting something off your chest. You're not truly trying to solve a problem. And there are ways to go about solving that problem. You know, for instance, Twitter is not a platform for healthy debate uh, about these things. And notice the reason he says it's important to obey your elders. So that it'll benefit you. That it will be a joy for you and for them. Look at what he says in verse 17. You can either 
make this job for those who have been called to it a joy or a grief. You know, as the apostle John said, there's no greater joy for me than to see my children walking in the truth. But there's no greater pain for the elders than to see the opposite as well. And these are part of the burdens that they bear. But let me make sure that you hear me as a congregation. You are not a burden because you are seeking help or you're in need of mercy or your life is messy. That is not what makes their job a grief. Don't get me wrong, we will grieve with you. And sometimes things are heartbreaking when we see them close up. But we are in the ministry to begin with because we want to see the wounded healed and the weak made strong and the burdened unloaded and to give wisdom to those who are in need of it. That is the responsibility that the elders not only can handle, but something they desire to do. That's why, in one sense, they signed up for the job. But you can be a burden to the elders if they plead, for instance, with you to attend to the means of grace in your time of trouble and you just refuse. Or they come to you with a clear scripture and clear evidence that you're in the wrong and you simply refuse to repent or take heed to what they're saying. Or if you've come to them time and time again and they've pled with you to take a certain course of action, but you always think that there's just a better way, those things can become grievous. Those who make it difficult for us to shepherd them are not those who are needy, but those who are hiding, that just won't receive counsel, who don't come often, who always have reasons why they can't be seen or engage. You know, for an elder to expend energy just trying to get a hold of you, that's what can become grievous. Not when you unload your burdens. You see, sessions can end up tangled and burdened by sheep who refuse to hear the exhortation of the Word of God in public or in private. Then we have no ruling authority. I mean, how can we even speak into your life if you won't give us an ear to hear? And so for your own sake, according to the text, for your own joy, he says, don't make their job a grief. It's for your own good. Not for, it's not, hey, do this because I don't want the elders to have headaches, which I don't want the elders to have headaches. But do it for your own good, for the good of your own salvation and your soul. It is good for them. It is good for you that they come alongside you. And we need to define that good by the greatest good, which according to the author of Hebrews is the salvation of your soul. They're not always going to be a source of constant comfort for you. They're not always going to say words that you want to hear, but care that leads you away from destruction and towards the gospel of grace in Christ Jesus. That is what's good for you. And while you may not be eager always to hear it, May you be eager for the, the intent that's behind it to remain in your life all life long. And then seeing this, notice how the author ends. He says, pray for us. Seeing how sobering it all is, pray for us. And we would encourage you to do that. Pray that these elders would shepherd in light of the good shepherd. Pray that, that ego and pride and sin and those sorts of things wouldn't get involved uh, or, or cause havoc in, in the role of the session. Pray that they would live lives worthy of imitation. Pray that they would labor over the word of God and in prayer. Pray for us. According to this text, for your own good, pray for those who lead. As we close this morning then,
I want to ground it in this. It's, we do all of this because it is the care of the great shepherd. I mean, this is a great mystery. That the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ himself, who was moved with compassion because he saw sheep without a shepherd, so moved that he purchased the church with his own blood by laying down his life for his sheep, whose commitment to them is so unwavering that he literally loved them to death, who swears he has given us all that we need for life and for godliness. He gave us this. This is what he decided he wanted for the care of those that he cared enough to die for. He said, this is my way of keeping them till the new creation. It's the care he decided to give. He believes it's the best way to get his sheep to their place of rest, his wisdom deigned this weak plan of broken but saved sheep leading other broken and saved sheep until they all get to the great shepherd, the lamb on the throne. May we rejoice in this mysterious wisdom and may we pray, place ourselves joyfully under his care by accepting this sort of care in our daily lives in the church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.